I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Season three. Whole three. I cannot even believe that we are recording our third season of this podcast. I'm old. You're old. Yeah, we're Damn both old. old. Yes. <laughs> so JJ and I are actually recording in person. Hi. This is something that we have never done before in the whole history of the podcast. And we are actually currently attending a continuing education conference right now. Mm-hmm. So um, we are recording in our hotel room. So if you notice any changes in the sound quality compared to normal, that's why. Mm-hmm. There might be a creeper to listen next door to <laughs> <laughs> we got to leave that in. Uh, that's just my take my thyroid medicine alarm, but I have already taken my thyroid medicine. And my phone is on silent, so I really don't appreciate that cardinal rule. Is your phone on silent? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we are 100% ready to start. So, okay. So we're recording with each other for the first time in person. Hi. So, um, now, last season... When we left off our last episode, we chatted with Dr. Nobles, the emergency critical care specialist. It was a super fun episode. And as we were signing off for the season, we said, you know, we're going to be coming at you with some bonus episodes for the holidays. And we lied. Yes, that did not happen. (laughs) Uh, So we did want to issue an apology about that. And sometimes life gets in the way. So we thought we would start season three by giving you guys just a quick update about all of the things that are happening in introvets land. So JJ, do you want to go first? Um, sure. Uh, what has happened in introvets land? Um, yeah. Uh, moved, got, got the house completed and, and sold the other house, sold, sold our house in a weekend. Yeah. In two days, right? Yeah. Like, it went on the market on uh, Thursday. We let it marinate on a Friday. Had like 18 million viewings on a Saturday and accepted an offer on Sunday. Well, there were several offers, but yeah, it was uh, it was a lot. Like a whirlwind. I was glad it was done, but holy yeah. shit. Then you had to move out of your house. Uh-huh. Then you had to stay in a hotel. Yes. For what, a week? I uh, knew it was closer to two weeks. Two weeks. Almost two whole weeks. Before you were able to move into your new house. Yes. And then when you moved into your new house, not everything was functional. Well, we didn't have a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the plumbing, the plumbing backed up three times, but we figured out what was wrong with that and that got fixed. But, yeah. and the worst thing, unfortunately, was. The day that we were moving, I was at work, Ben was handling the movers, and we found out that my remaining dog had a abdominal mass that was bleeding and unexpectedly had to put her down. So yeah. that sucked. It did. And you guys, uh, that was snuffy, and you guys mm-hmm. had just lost weeds just like a month before yeah, it that, was, right? That was in September, so, just, a, couple so a couple months, months. but yeah. Yeah. That ew. we're still, <laughs> we're. St- I've never not had a dog before, so mm, it's uh, it's very quiet, yeah, and sad. But 
We're getting a puppy. You're getting a puppy. Mm-hmm. That have the knees. I have a knees. That we talked about on the podcast. Yes. In like a week, right? Yep, next weekend. Yeah, so that's really exciting. Yes. Especially exciting. And you have another new thing. I do. Yeah. What? You have a new job. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I would not forget. Um, yes, uh, I have a, um, I've accepted a contract position where I'll be working for a company that's also working through the VA hospital to look for a correlation between uh, military dog uh, health issues and human military personnel health issues. And uh, I'm excited because it's right up my alley. Yeah, that is so awesome. I mean, what a great, like, segue in your career that's going to help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's going to compile really interesting information, and I, I hope eventually lay people get to see those studies, too. It'll probably be classified for a while, I imagine. <laughs> JJ has to get, like, secret clearance. And it's stuff. like <laughs> the mildest, tiniest of a clearance. I mean, it's it basically just says, it allows you to look at these police dog records. But. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, like, that's awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. And so then in Lauren land, mm-hmm. um, I'm still in my master's program. And I'm in my third semester now. This semester is a ton of writing. I still own my own relief business. But I've stepped back a little bit from clinical work and am focusing more on contract work. I've been doing some uh, writing contracts. Um, I've been developing test questions uh, for some uh, preparation tests for the NAVLA, which has been really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's a really difficult thing to, to juggle. So I'm still sort of adjusting how much clinical practice can I, um, can I be available for and succeed at while also finishing my master's degree. So that's been a real, a real juggle requiring a lot of adjustment. Yeah. But you're kicking ass and taking names. That's right. That's right. I just got inducted into the Honor Society for Counseling. <laughs> Who didn't see that coming? I don't know. <laughs> Super exciting. <laughs> so so I'm really excited about the way that that is taking off for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely don't have plans to immediately leave clinical practice altogether. I'll definitely have to take some breaks when I'm in clinical training for therapy, for sure, because you can't, well, you can, but it's not reasonable to work 80 hours a week mm-hmm. doing therapy and veterinary medicine like that's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, uh, you know, I think trying to figure out how Carl and I are going to adjust to, to these changes just sort of took a little extra time and around the holidays, there was just too much going on. And JJ and I both needed a mental break. Mm-hmm. And remember when you need a mental break, what should you do? Take that bitch. Take a break, right? <laughs> Take the break. So JJ, yes. for our first episode of season three, we are going to talk about a case, but this case is different. This is not an animal case. Mm, no. Today we are going to talk about a person case. Mm-hmm. And this case is going to go ahead. Well, I'm going to go ahead and just spoil this. This case will focus on compassion fatigue in a veterinarian. So I'm going to read the case this time. You go. Okay. So we're going to talk about Sarah. Now, Sarah 
is not the real veterinarian's name. The name has been changed to protect her identity. Sarah is a 33-year-old veterinarian, and her symptoms first began when she was in her sixth year of clinical practice. She noticed that she felt this uncharacteristic anger just regarding everyday situations. So like having to wait in traffic, like the gas pump being off, having to go get the receipt from the clerk, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things, like just things that you should be able to handle were just driving her over the edge. She had this feeling that she just did not have enough time to fulfill her responsibilities to her job or to her family. She was struggling to sleep and she was having major problems with intrusive imagery. Now that means seeing very scary images. Like when you close your eyes, go try to go to sleep at night, you're seeing injured patients, things that you've done that day are kind of like flashing through your mind and it prevents you from being able to relax. So, so she was experiencing that. And in the morning, she could barely get out of bed. She was just completely unrested. She felt exhausted all the time. Sarah's colleagues started noticing. She doesn't seem right. Something is wrong. So she was so exhausted, and this was affecting her so much that even the people that she worked with were like, mm, something is wrong with you. And even some clients mentioned, gosh, you seem really tired. She started becoming really easily frustrated with coworkers and clients. And then slowly over time, she started to have some thoughts about disappearing, wanting to disappear, wanting for her responsibilities to end, wanting for her life to end. And luckily, Sarah did confide in her mother about this. And her mother said, you really need to go see a psychotherapist. And Sarah said, okay, I will. And Sarah had a few sessions with the therapist and um, getting to know the therapist and going through the problems that she was having, the therapist said, I think that you might be experiencing compassion fatigue. Sarah had not really heard of compassion fatigue before, but as she looked into it with the help of her therapist, she started to realize, I definitely have this. I have many of the classic symptoms. So for Sarah, compassion fatigue was majorly impacting her everyday life. I've noticed just about every CE that I've had lately has had at least one, if not more, compassion fatigue classes. And I've sat in on some of them. And a lot of times it basically will tell you that it exists and that you're not supposed to get it. It's like it's, uh, you know, you, you don't step in that. You might, you know, you might get dirty. Don't, don't, don't go, go over there and get into that. But it doesn't really explain what it is in depth, what are the symptoms, what to look for, and what to do about it if you find yourself experiencing it. I feel like we need to know more about how to know if you have it and what to do if you find yourself having these same symptoms as Sarah. Yeah, I agree. I, online CE and in-person CE for technicians, for veterinarians, burnout and compassion fatigue are really common uh, topics. And I also agree that when I have attended those topics, I've been left a little let down because as you said, they sort of present this as don't get compassion fatigue. You need to make sure it doesn't happen to you. And 
I, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but I, I'm not sure that that's the right approach. I, I kind of think in our profession, compassion fatigue might be an, an inevitable consequence. Absolutely. Uh, simply because of all of the risk factors, and we're going to go over those in this episode, but once you hear the list of risk factors for compassion fatigue, it's like, well, shit, did they write this about veterinarians? Because mm-hmm. it seems like they did. So in short, the reason that you're hearing so much about compassion fatigue lately is we are trying to save lives. Um, this is, we are hoping, an intervention for suicidal ideation and suicide attempts and suicide completion in veterinarians. Uh, so I think to understand why this has become such a huge topic all of a sudden, we have to go back just a little bit in time and look at some recent history, anecdotally, like just in the profession for years and years, like decades, I would say. We kind of had this feeling, you know, people talk about it. Gosh, veterinarians kill themselves a lot. Veterinarians have mental health issues a lot. But I never remember hearing anything about research regarding it ever until like the mid-2010s. Now, when I started looking at this and digging into the research, I was really surprised to find that studies showing a higher incidence of suicide in veterinarians date all the way back to the 1980s. The 1980s are now a long time ago. Ouch. <laughs> I know. Shots fired. <laughs> So, you know, like I was born in the early 1980s and I will turn 40 this year. So this is a long time. Okay. So for like at least four decades, we've not just suspected it, we've known it, but I don't ever remember hearing about research regarding this until right around 2015. And that is because in 2015, the CDC put out the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And in that report, they said, Veterinarians are significantly more likely to experience serious psychological distress, to suffer from depressive episodes, and to consider suicide as an option when compared to the general population. Mm-hmm. And this study was picked up by the national media. And you started hearing some rumblings for the first time. Okay. Then that prompted, in turn, two studies in 2019. Okay. Both of them were published in JAVMA, okay? The first one of those said veterinarians are significantly more likely to die by suicide compared to the general population. And the second one said both veterinarians and veterinary technicians are significantly more likely to die by suicide compared to the general population, okay? Then that amped the publicity up further. And to be honest, combined with the very tragic deaths of some really prominent veterinary Mm -hmm. figures, all of that together sort of promoted this wave of mental health consciousness, right? And the veterinary industry started trying to respond to this. And and when industry responds to things, they try to study it more. So let's get more studies and try to reproduce this data. And then they also start to conduct continuing education classes about it. The CDC has outlined several educational targets for suicide prevention. Now, this is not for vets. This is for everyone. Okay, so in general, if we want to prevent suicide, the CDC says we got to teach people coping skills. We've got to teach them problem-solving skills. We got to identify people who are at risk, and we got to give the at-risk individuals support. 
So when we're talking about compassion fatigue and continuing education meetings for vets and vet techs, we're targeting that third thing, identification of at-risk individuals. If you know about compassion fatigue, you know what the risks are, our hope is that you can say, oh, shit, I'm experiencing that. Please help. So this is our attempt at an intervention. We're trying to prevent more deaths. And compassion fatigue has been identified as an independent risk factor for suicidal ideation and suicide. So if we bring attention to the risks of a compassion fatigue, we're thinking we can enact protective measures because we've identified those at-risk people. So we've both heard a lot about it. How is compassion fatigue defined? Compassion fatigue is the mental and physical distress that caregivers experience when they are exposed to chronic suffering and trauma in others. Now, the others we're talking about could be clients, like people that bring pets in, or it could be our patients, our animal friends. So if either one of those two populations is experiencing suffering, we as the caregiver are impacted by that. That impact is called compassion fatigue. Now, compassion fatigue is a little bit of a misnomer. Compassion is the desire to relieve suffering in others. Empathy is about perspective taking and taking on the perspective of other people as well as their discomfort or their pain. And as we have done more research about this, it's really empathy that can get fatigued. Compassion doesn't really get fatigued. We, we don't really experience decreases in our desire to help. But when we get stressed out and, and we, we're doing too much, our ability to take on that perspective of the other person begins to decline. So a lot of uh, psychologists have said, well, let's call it empathetic distress fatigue instead uh, but that hasn't really caught on. And I suspect that you won't see that change um, just because so much of the research involves the term compassion fatigue uh, that it, I think it would be really difficult to go back and change yeah. it now. That's that's the, the term that most people know. Okay. So we know kind of what it is, but how do you know if you have it? Like what specifically are some symptoms of compassion fatigue? Well, they vary. There is a list of recognized symptoms of compassion fatigue, and I'm just going to hit down the list, and then I'm going to give you some examples. Exhaustion, frustration, depression, apathy. Apathy just means like, ugh, I don't care, right? Mm, yeah. I don't care. I, can't, I, I just feel dull. Well-versed in that one. Yeah. <laughs> Headaches, gastrointestinal distress, so tummy problems. Sleep disturbances, either I'm sleeping too much, I'm not sleeping enough, I can get to sleep, but I wake up in the middle of the night, hello, that's me, or I can't go to sleep at all. Intrusive imagery, okay, we talked about that a little bit earlier when we are talking about Sarah's case, but again, that's that, those flashes of really terrible shit that you think like, okay, normal people don't think about shit like this, now I'm really worried about mm -hmm. myself, okay, but... Um, but they do, okay? And, and, and this happens to people even if you're normal, okay? Mm -hmm. um, th this is really disturbing, though, and it can contribute, for sure, to sleep disturbance when you're having these intrusive thoughts. And then the last is fear, just in general, right? We might experience fear regarding um, surgical procedures or medical procedures or medical cases, maybe managing a certain type of animal, 
we might start having trouble with uh, going into exam rooms and talking to clients one-on-one if we're introverted. I feel, um, I feel personally attacked. <laughs> personally <there>. attacked. Okay, <laughs> JJ is personally attacked by this. Any type of fear, okay? And then the fear, uh, if it gets bad enough, we can start having problems with phobias where we develop like a permanent just terror about having to deal with this problem. Fear is also a really complex symptom in in and of itself. It can range from mild to severe. Really severe fear might do things like trigger panic attacks, which is super scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the symptoms vary, but the effects worsen over time. If we don't address the underlying cause, that's super important. So I'm going to say it again. If you have symptoms of compassion fatigue and you ignore them, you try to put a Band-Aid on it or you don't address the underlying cause, they are going to get worse. And we're going to come back to that here in just a minute. Lord. So that's the list of symptoms. But this is not an all-inclusive list. And this is not um, a list that we need to say, well, I don't have all these things, so it's not compassion fatigue. That's not what this is. You can have any one of these symptoms, or you might have a combination. You don't have to have all of them. So you might be experiencing frustration easily, having headaches and not sleeping well. You might have tummy upset when you're at work and not be able to go to sleep at night and also be experiencing depression. Maybe you only feel apathy, right? So any kind of combination and mix of these things can signal compassion fatigue. Okay, so we have the what it is and the how you may know if you have it. Let's let's talk a little bit about why is compassion fatigue a common thing for veterinary professionals. As I mentioned earlier, when I'm looking at this list of risk factors, I think, God, th- this was written about vets. I mean, it wasn't, but it, it might as well have been, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go through and we're going to talk about the individual risk factors Before I do that, I want to give you some more information. So we did go over some of this information in detail when we had our episode with Dr. Lori Funken in the first season of the show. That episode is called Decision Fatigue Dice. If you've not heard that episode, I do think that it's a great companion uh, to this one and uh, in the next episode that we're going to do. Some of the information I'm going to present is originally the work of Roshi Joan Halifax, a Buddhist nun who uh, Dr. Funken introduced us to. I mean, Mm -hmm. not in person, that would have been awesome, (laughs) but she introduced us to her work. And then uh, some of this is from the actual course materials that I was required to study to earn my Compassion Fatigue Professional Certification. Okay, so that's where I'm getting this info. And as always, we will put references in the show notes and on social media for you to check out. So I want to start with a quote from Dr. Funken that I think is really moving. Okay, so here's what she said about veterinarians and compassion fatigue. For those who devote their lives to the service of others, the physical and emotional demands can lead to exhaustion. The natural response may be to work harder, to do more, and to give until there is nothing left to give. And that quote, really more than anything on compassion fatigue, is just, to me, that just epitomizes the problem in our profession. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's very common for veterinarians to view their career as a calling. 
Dr. Funken talked with us previously about how dangerous that is to view your work as a calling. That can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse. Lots of veterinarians and veterinary technicians and veterinary support staff view the work that they do as something that is at the center, at the core of their personal identity, right? Yep. It's one of the main puzzle pieces that makes up that, that the middle of the puzzle here. Mm-hmm. But caregivers experience emotional consequences when they provide care. That doesn't mean sometimes, that doesn't mean some individuals, that means everybody. If you are a, are a caretaker of any type, you are going to be emotionally and physically impacted by the work that you do. And the risk factors for compassion fatigue are things that are frequently encountered in our field, and I would almost argue completely unavoidable in our field. I don't think that compassion fatigue for veterinarians is, a, is an if or a possibility. I think it's a when. W-H-E-N. Mm-hmm. When is it going to happen, not if. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in our uh, pre-podcast meeting today, we were talking about things like idyllic expectations, about how, you know, it's it's a tough job, it's a tough career choice, but you can just pull up your bootstraps and get right through it, and everything's going to be fine. Let's talk about how that's not the case. Yeah, so... The traditional culture of veterinary medicine, in my opinion, okay, you tell me what you think, but um, when I think about the traditional culture of veterinary medicine, we are told that we always need to be working harder. Mm-hmm. We should not let setbacks phase us. Just I, I can remember my first boss, who I really love and respect. This is not anything bad against him, but he used to just say, you're just going to have to let it run off your back like water off a duck, you know, like mm-hmm. no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we shouldn't be phased by professional challenges. We got to remain positive or like at the very least stoic mm-hmm. and like unaffected by all of the shit that's constantly thrown at us. And um, when we face negative case outcomes or angry clients or grieving clients, any kind of client emotion that's very strong, that that somehow shouldn't affect us, that we should be able to rise above it, um, that we should be, quote, tough enough. And that that uh, traditional sort of ethic surrounding how veterinarians should act is idealistic, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're saying, oh, we're so good at what we do that we're not going to be affected by these things. The reason that that's dangerous is that Having idealistic expectations about the emotional toll of healthcare work is a direct risk factor for compassion fatigue. So if you are a hospice worker and you're like, I'll be fine, you, you have higher risk. If you're a nurse and you're like, working in these COVID units won't affect me, you're at higher risk. You're at higher risk than someone who acknowledges this work is difficult and I'm, I, it's okay for me to be affected by it, right? If you have that mindset, then you're actually a little bit more protected. Yes, and in, in my training and in yours, we're kind of set up for failure because we're told that that's what you have to do to get through it. But Yeah, just buckle down, unfortunately, keep your head down, work harder, push through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, do not do those things. That, that's, that's not going to be good. So... Sometimes we place the needs of others, so the needs of our clients, the needs of our patients, uh, first to the point that we become physically or emotionally harmed. And that's called 
pathological altruism. Okay, that's one of the um, barriers to well-being that Roshi Joan Halifax described. And it's directly connected to this uh, idea, this idealistic expectation that we're going to be remain unaffected from our work. It's just not true. So if we can recognize that it's normal for our work to affect us, instead of that being a failure, that's actually helpful. That's like first step. So if you feel like you're invincible, that is a bad sign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'd like for you to change your thinking about that. So idyllic expectations aren't the only thing that contribute. Traumatic events can also contribute to compassion fatigue. Absolutely. So we call this secondary or vicarious trauma. So anytime a caregiver is exposed to others' pain and suffering, we're getting these little tiny traumas that we carry around with us. And veterinary training focuses almost exclusively on patient care. It does not in any way, or at least it didn't when I was in school. That was, you know, I graduated in 2008. I really don't think much has changed, at least at my veterinary institution since then. They do not teach us really to cope with the emotional distress that's inherent in our field. In my, you know, training as a therapist, part of what we're doing in, in school is learning how to hear all of these things and be exposed to all of these terrible events that, that clients face without taking it home at the end of the day. And vets just simply don't get that training. And certainly veterinary technicians and support staff don't. So we really aren't given the skills that we need to manage the emotional reactions we feel. When we're confronted with the suffering of others, those emotional reactions are normal. And if we suppress them or tell ourselves that we're weak or stupid or ignorant for feeling that way, that makes the problem worse. If we don't have those tools in our toolbox to be able to respond appropriately to these completely normal feelings, that puts us at a disadvantage. So veterinary professionals who deal with cases that involve injury, acts of purposeful cruelty, abuse, and graphic details are at a greater risk for developing compassion fatigue. These are the types of challenging cases, though, that are frequently encountered. So mm -hmm. I don't think, like, in what way could you possibly eliminate this from the profession? I don't think there is a way. Um, now, certainly some types of veterinary professionals are going to have uh, this risk factor uh, be a more prominent in their everyday life. So people who work emergency, right? Uh, they see all of these things all the time. People who work in animal welfare, people who work in like animal control officers, um, people who work in, in uh, the ASPCA or animal shelters are going to see some of these abuse and neglect cases, some of these mm -hmm. hoarding cases that sometimes private practice is a little bit insulated from. And then the acts of purposeful cruelty are, um, you know, animal welfare officers uh, are going to be exposed to those a little bit more as they investigate cases. So any type of exposure to these traumatic events, even though they didn't happen to you, they didn't happen to your pet, they do have a psychological impact. Okay. You touched on this a little earlier when you were talking about how we're not, we're, we're taught not to feel the pain of, you know, a client who's saying goodbye to their pet. So let's talk about empathetic distress. Empathetic distress occurs when a caretaker really ha has so much empathy, it's unregulated and it's unhealthy. So 
veterinarians who experience sympathetic distress are taking on the emotional pain of the client. So this would be um, in your example of like a euthanasia patient, the client is in there, uh, they're having significant outward signs of distress, weeping. When that happens, the veterinarian can feel that pain, not just the veterinarian, but the staff too, can feel that pain as if it's their own. And um, that can be a risk factor for compassion fatigue as well. Okay. Now, uh, a related issue would be if we feel concern about the client's ability to cope. So uh, I think about those clients who have an extreme emotional bond with their pets. Okay. Mm -hmm. We all know them. I can think of several. I can think of five off the top of my head that I know are going to have a terrible time if something horrible happens with their pet. Okay. Now, most people, every person, if their pet dies, they're going to feel sad. Okay. But we all know some people that have such an, an extreme bond with the patient that we're all dreading. Oh, God. Yeah. What if something happens to, to Fluffy? Right. Yeah. yeah. You think about things like, you know, say, for instance, if Fluffy belonged to a relative or a spouse that has passed away, mm-hmm. there's an extra layer of attachment yeah. that is concerning a lot of times. That's a great example. Another one I think of is um, elderly clients, mm-hmm. particularly those in isolated environments. So mm-hmm. elderly client, I mean, I, I can, again, so common to have an elderly client who lives alone, doesn't have any family around. Rover is their only companion and has been for more than a decade, right? Mm-hmm. That individual, we know, we can just intuit. I mean, it doesn't take a, it's not rocket science here. That person is going to be dramatically affected by the loss of that pet because they don't have another support system. The Mm -hmm. pet is their sole support system. Mm -hmm. When we see this, when we have this high degree of emotional attachment, this contributes to compassion fatigue. Okay. Our anticipatory grief. Okay. Uh, Our, our anticipatory distress about, Oh God, what if this happens? And then when it finally does, we go home and we worry about that client, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I've mm-hmm. had clients who I've had to, you know, I've given them detailed information about here's the number of a therapist. Here's the number for the suicide hotline. I want you to call someone if you're not going to be okay. Man, I worry about them mm-hmm. for days, for weeks, for mm-hmm. months afterwards. All of that takes a toll. Mm-hmm. All of that takes a toll. Absolutely. And something else that we had uh, discussed in the pre-podcast meeting was uh, moral distress. There's several different things that can cause that, but one being, you know, what's considered a convenience euthanasia or mm-hmm. uh, it's a young pet that there could be potentially something done for, but the owner just cannot financially handle it. So it turns into a euthanasia or uh, a pet that... um you feel that you could do so much more for, but they can only afford the minimum. Some personnel, staff members, veterinarians feel the need to pay out of pocket for that because of the the feelings of moral distress. So there's some some more you want to talk about on that one. Yeah, what what you are describing is moral distress. So that happens anytime we have either a real, actual, or even just a perceived 
violation of our own moral and ethical beliefs, okay? So you mentioned economic euthanasia, okay, or convenience euthanasia. That's absolutely one. You mentioned finances as a barrier to care. Absolutely that can trigger a feeling of moral distress in the veterinarian. Some of the other things that I think about would be, you know, things that uh, to, to workers or veterinarians seem like arbitrary or insensitive rules of management, right? If we've had these frustrating barriers to care that are implemented by the administration at the hospital, that incites moral distress. If we uh, have an inappropriately large workload and we're saying, holy crap, I can't, as one veterinarian, see all of these animals today, and yet I'm being asked to do it by management. I, I, I quote, can't decline to take a case. That's going to lead to moral distress. Mm -hmm. Or if I find that um, best practices aren't being adhered to. If I have, a, as a veterinarian, a, a commitment to providing very high level of care, and I find myself in an environment where providing that high level of care isn't supported by the medical director, by the boss, um, then that can lead to moral distress. Any type of situation that places the demands of the client or the policies of the business above the need for patient care can trigger this feeling of moral distress. And this is something that I struggle with a lot. Another great example would be, uh, you mentioned client barriers like financially. One of the ones that I see a lot it is what it seems to me in my judgment is client apathy about a situation, right? Like, I'm telling you that your cat has hyperthyroidism. I know that you don't think it's sick. I know you don't think it's a big deal. But if you don't treat the cat, it's going to go downhill and die. And the client is just like, whatever. That is so frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't do anything about it. We can't drive to the house, kidnap the cat and treat it. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't, you know, what, what can we do? We're, we're kind of... You know, we're, our hands are tied, right? Yeah. That That is moral distress. And moral distress is a risk factor for compassion fatigue. And, and I would say that moral distress is something that veterinarians and staff encounter, I don't know, daily? I feel like I encounter it daily mm -hmm. in clinical practice. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a, da a daily thing. Mm -hmm. So frustrating. Yeah, yeah, some of the things that you brought up, I, I don't know. I guess I hadn't thought about them as being part of that category and yeah that is a that is a daily problem so you uh, mentioned a couple of things where management was kind of stepping in possibly causing some problems what are some other ways that management can contribute to compassion fatigue well compassion fatigue is more common anytime a caregiver has a large caseload and especially if that large caseload involves multiple challenging clients and patients so if your uh, new associate is scheduled for the dreaded private practice Saturday where they're the only clinic open and they find themselves with uh, one technician managing three diabetics, a pancreatitis case, a hit by a car, and a cat in respiratory distress while also doing all of the vaccination appointments on schedule, you're setting that uh, associate up to have a problem with compassion fatigue. A little bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, management can, you know, intervene to try to reduce that overwhelming caseload for that veterinarian. And, and the strategies that you would use would be, would kind of vary by hospital, okay? But so anytime you have an excessively large caseload, 
the number is not static. Okay, the number of uh, the number of cases that a veterinarian can manage on a given day will vary depending on how the vet is feeling, how long they've been out of school, how knowledgeable they are about the patients that are presenting, how many staff they have, how much nutrition and sleep they've had, how much nutrition and sleep the staff has had, okay? Like the types of patients that are presenting. So it can really vary. But instituting policies to sort of balance that out can really go a long way towards helping. Uh, and then the other way that management sometimes act, maybe even accidentally contributes to compassion fatigue is by creating an autocratic environment. Now, what that means is that in an autocratic environment, um, in autocratic management structures, doctors and staff really have minimal power or autonomy. Uh, they can't make decisions that they think they need to make. They can't um, provide the, the level of care that they want to provide. Um, it's kind of like a my way or the highway situation from a, you know, a boss or a, the medical director or some leader that, that they maybe they don't agree with. Um, and if the administration places little emphasis on the satisfaction and fulfillment of their workers, all of those things contribute to compassion fatigue. So if you're listening to this and your management style is kind of a rule with an iron fist, my way or the highway situation, just know that you're not putting your employees and your associate veterinarians in the best position to remain mentally healthy. So earlier when we were talking about how in training, you and I both experienced, um, you know, being told just push through that, whatever is going on. Another thing that I know I've been taught is no matter what's going on in your personal life, it shouldn't affect work. Don't ever let that affect work. But there's not really a good way to prevent that from happening. Well, you're absolutely right. This expectation that we have, another idealistic expectation, that our personal lives won't affect our work or our ability to handle cases, that that's also not healthy. So any type of other stressor in your life, any type at all, increases your risk of compassion fatigue, okay? Now, this might include things like a history of personal trauma, okay? Physical, mental, emotional trauma. Maybe you have a combat history, Maybe you grew up in a household where there was abuse. Maybe you are exposed to domestic violence in your home today or in the past. Any of those things can create an increased risk of compassion fatigue. Additionally, if you have anxiety, if you have a generalized anxiety disorder like I do, if you have any type of even casual anxiety, okay, <laughs> that's a risk factor for compassion fatigue. And then if you lack a social support system, if you've moved recently, maybe you've relocated to take a new job, that puts you at risk because your social support system uh, isn't right there with you, okay? If you experience maybe a loss in your support system, a death of a loved one, death of a, a, a spouse, maybe you're going through a breakup, maybe you're going through a divorce, okay? Any disruption to your social support system increases the risk of compassion fatigue. And then... Any other concurrent life stressor at all? And I just made a list of a few that I thought of off the top of my head, but we're talking like anything, okay? The, the death of a pet, okay? Uh, having a baby, financial issues, if you're in debt, maybe an investment went south, 
Maybe a bill came in that you weren't expecting. Okay, maybe your car broke down. You're like, how the crap am I going to get to work now? Any difficulty that you encounter in everyday life, these these are all um, risk factors. So when you're when you're looking at this list that we've just been through, I mean, every veterinarian is going to experience those things. Every veterinary staff member is going to experience those things, and if you keep rolling the dice, eventually they're going to hit. So that's why I say compassion fatigue is not an if, it's a win scenario. I, I really feel like that is true mm-hmm. in veterinary Absolutely. medicine. But the good news is that if we know about our own risk factors and we know we are high risk as of being a veterinary professional, check, high risk. Mm-hmm. Well, we can intervene right away. If we're starting to see symptoms, right? If you if you heard me list those things and you're like, I feel that way. I recognize what she's talking about. I have a history of personal trauma. I have anxiety. My my support system has been uh, disrupted recently, right? If you're out there hearing that, we need to talk about some of the symptoms that you need to watch out for. And in watching out for that, we can then intervene before it becomes a terrible problem. We have a list here of several early warning signs of compassion fatigue. Frequent tiredness, irritability, arguing about minor issues, inability to relax, constant feeling of being under pressure or in demand, lack of patience or tolerance, (laughs) hello, (laughs) feeling that there is no time for family, friends, or self, memory and concentration issues, Mm lack of interest or time for socialization and recreational activities, irritability and exhaustion, and feeling unfulfilled at the end of the workday. Yeah, and these are early warning signs. So if you're going through and you're experiencing any of these on this list, it's a time to push a pause and just assess. Is this a normal feeling, an everyday feeling, and it passes? Or is it persisting? Do I need to do some self-work and seek some help for this, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, looking at this list, I can tell you I've been through times where I've felt this way, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe not even all of them at at one time. As with some of the symptoms that we mentioned earlier, the, the big symptoms, you don't have to have all of them. Just having one or two of these is enough for us to kind of push the pause button and self evaluate. The thing that I find the most interesting on there is that constant feeling of being under pressure or in demand. Man, I have felt that way in the past. Like I'm remembering situations where I felt like I just couldn't get it all done. You Mm -hmm. know, that is a really distressing way to feel Mm -hmm. for sure. The other one I wanted to highlight is memory and concentration issues. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself being like, I mean, I just can't think of this word. I can't remember this drug dosage that I use all the time. I'm forgetting about important personal events, right? I'm kind of maybe not 100% paying attention when my spouse is talking to me about something and now I've hurt their feelings by not paying attention. All of those sorts of things, you really need to pay attention to that. Now, there is another helpful tool that we have to use in screening for compassion fatigue. It's called the Professional Quality of Life Assessment. That's abbreviated PRO-QOL. Now, here's the good news. It's available for free online from the AVMA. You can take it as many times as you like. Now, like any assessment, this is a snapshot in time. Okay, so this is not going to say like, 
this is your long-range risk of compassion fatigue. It really gives you a picture of where you're at right now. So as things change in your life, you would you know, have to take it again to see where you're at. But this is the most widely used evidence-based assessment of compassion fatigue, compassion satisfaction, and burnout. And I would encourage everyone uh, to go and take it if you like. Um, I think it's super interesting. I've taken it like two or three times and my number varies like often. <laughs> um, and we will put a link to this in the show notes and we'll also put it on our social media as well if you guys are interested in taking this assessment. So like any assessment, this isn't going to provide a diagnosis. This just gives you useful information. So if you take that assessment and you're in like a, you know, a category that shows, gosh, I'm experiencing some moderate to severe compassion fatigue, let's seek out a mental health professional to, to get that checked out. Additionally, if you're scoring a normal range, but you're having symptoms and not feeling good, still go see someone about that. So this is not the end all be all. It's just one of the tools that we have. So we're going to talk about Sarah again, our friend from earlier. Okay. And she was having some uh, issues with the suicidal ideation. Let's talk about that symptom for a moment. Okay. This is a big symptom, a mm -hmm. scary one, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One that is more common than people would suspect. So suicidal ideation is a term for any type of suicidal thought or idea and it's kind of a broad term, and it's not very specifically defined. So if you look at the research, some papers say it's any type of idea surrounding suicide or wanting to disappear. Uh, some say, uh, no, there has to be a plan for it to be suicidal ideation. Some other people say, no, if you have a plan, that's like a step worse, and suicidal ideation is like the beginning phase. So it hasn't been really clearly defined. But in general, suicidal ideation is an idea that you would be better off, maybe even the world would be better off if you didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are a couple of types. There's passive and active. Passive is more kind of these general vague thoughts of, I wish I could disappear. I wish I wasn't here anymore. Everyone would be better off without me. Active suicidal ideation would be more involving imagining a specific plan or scenario. Okay, now, either of these things, active or passive suicidal ideation, is something that you need to seek help for if you're experiencing this, because these thoughts can get worse, and they can progress to suicide attempts if we're not careful. So, Sarah, at the beginning, was having thoughts of wanting to disappear, wanting to go away. And that is kind of an early suicidal ideation. And if you are experiencing similar thoughts, that's an indication that you need to seek mental health, health care right away, mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to tell your therapist that you're, that you're feeling that way. It's not like in the movies, they're not going to like cart you off to the, you know, uh, to the institution or put you in a straitjacket or anything like in the horror movies, okay? Mm -hmm. But this is important information for them to know about, and they can help guide you through this. So earlier you mentioned burnout. What is the difference between burnout and compassion fatigue? That is another fantastic question. Uh, a lot of people get these terms confused or conflate them. Uh, and 
this is another situation where the definitions sometimes conflict with one another, depending on whose paper you're reading. But the general consensus is compassion fatigue is a type of burnout. So burnout can occur in any profession, okay? Any at all. doesn't have to be a healthcare or caregiving profession. You can work... Um, I don't know. You can be a mechanic in burnout, right? Mm -hmm. You can, I'm trying to think of other careers. You can be a police officer in burnout, although that mm -hmm. does involve caring for people so that, you know, okay. Mm -hmm. You can be um, an office worker in burnout. You could work at a grocery store in burnout, right? Mm -hmm. Burnout just means that I am just exhausted from the demands of my job every day. Compassion fatigue occurs when you add the helping element in. So compassion fatigue is unique to the helping fields. Okay, so we have talked about compassion fatigue. We've talked about what it is. We've talked about some of the symptoms, risk factors, and how to recognize it. Mm -hmm. Now what do we do? Okay, this is so important. And this is what you were talking about at the beginning. A lot of the CE talks leave out, which is mm -hmm. like the action plan. Okay, mm -hmm. creating awareness is great, but we don't know what to do after we have become aware. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so this is super important because telling people to watch out for compassion fatigue, but failing to give them the tools and autonomy to actually act on their own behalf is cruel. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, here's what compassion fatigue is. Be sure not to get it. That's about as effective as someone saying, hey, calm down when you have anxiety. That is super not going to work. Yeah, I feel like you're in a pool and they say, don't get wet and don't give you a bucket. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so it doesn't work. So what we need to talk about is creating a personal action plan, okay? Um, when we're having distress, we need to know how we're going to manage the distress. That plan is going to be unique to each individual person. It needs to be written ahead of time. We need to keep it somewhere where when we're feeling in distress, we can pull it out and be like, I need to remember what the action plan is. <laughs> Just like when we were talking about checklists and Atul Gawande and all of that, mm -hmm. what you need, what each individual person needs, if you're seeing yourself reflected in these risk factors, in these symptoms, is a checklist of here's how we're going to act. Here, here's the reaction that we need to have so that we can pull the emergency lever and slow down for a little bit, right? Now, how to do that is complex, and I want to spend a whole episode talking about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring today's episode to a close, and next week, during the snack episode, we're going to devote the entire time to talking about all the different ways that you can manage compassion fatigue so that you can react on your own behalf. We're going to talk about things you can do on your own, resources you can purchase, free resources. We're going to talk about seeing a therapist, how to select one, how to pick one, how to find one that's going to work for you. We're going to talk about it all, and that's going to be next week. <laughs> to be continued. That's right. So we will see you guys next week for Snackisode 3.1. <laughs> In the meantime, if you have questions, stories, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Thanks. <laughs>
and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.